Good evening or good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, today, we are going to have a presentation by Professor Paula Doyle, who is a great American, a veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, and a professor at Georgetown University. And we'll talk a little bit more about her background. But before I do that, I just want to welcome everybody to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to IWP, IWP is a graduate school that offers uh, studies in national security, intelligence, and international affairs. IWP has doctoral programs, seven master's degree programs, including two online, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If anybody's interested in talking more, learning more about IWP, please see anybody on the staff, including myself afterwards, and we'd love to talk to you about the benefits of education here. And I have to add to this, because I have some notes here, but I have to add that uh, IWP, IWP has some incredible students who are very impressive young Americans. Uh, on behalf of IWP, I would like to thank all of its supporters who make IWP events possible. And if you are interested in supporting the mission of IWP, IWP please visit iwp.edu uh, backslash donate. Today we are going to be hearing from Ms. Paula Doyle, who will deliver a lecture titled Examining Turkey, Russia, and Iran Through the Lens of Modern Warfare and Terrorism. Boy, that's an easy topic to talk about. <laughs> I hope you all brought some espresso. Uh, Paula Doyle has over 30 years of experience working in the national security realm and foreign affairs community. She's a veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency and the Office of the Director of Intelligence and in the U.S. Department of State. Uh, Paula teaches at Georgetown, and I've had the uh, pleasure to go speak to some of her classes. She also has some wonderful students. Her expert areas of expertise include Turkey, Iran, Russia, foreign cyber programs and capabilities, counterintelligence, nuclear weapons, proliferation programs, the Middle East, and NATO. And I'm also happy to say Paula, who is a dear friend of my wife and my family and mine, and like a sister to me, is also an expert in taking care of people. She's a wonderful person, and I, have, I will admit that she was my boss at one point. She no longer writes my OERs, but I still say this, so <laughs> I mean it sincerely. Uh, Paula is also, um, she's on the board of directors of the OSS Society, the board of directors of the Central Intelligence Retirees Association, and a fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University. So I would ask everyone to give Paula a warm welcome. I know she's going to have a great talk tonight, and we're very fortunate to have her. Paula? Thank you, Glenn. Uh, does anyone speak Turkish? He's Glenn Pasha. Okay, so Pasha, uh, he may have worked for me at one point, but he is the Pasha. He is the, he is the real deal, the guy that runs uh, many, many, many missions and used to run many, many missions for CIA. It's really great to see you all here today. I'm kind of surprised to see some of my Georgetown colleagues here. Um, I guess the department figured out how to find the invitation link, and I'm very grateful. Uh, I wish to thank the Institute of World Politics for asking me to speak today about issues I worked on as a Foreign Service Officer and, as, and at CIA for over 30 years. 
As Glenn mentioned, I have spent the last seven years turning my attentions to really taking the time to study and teach, and with a real emphasis on study. When you're a national security practitioner or diplomat, you really have no time. Your inbox tells you what you're going to do every day. And the reflection time I am learning is coming in uh, the post-national security practitioner time of my life. And so this has been a very rich experience for me, and I'm grateful to Georgetown for bringing me on board. Uh, the views I present today are my own. They are not the views of the CIA, the State Department, or the intelligence community. Although, I hope that my remarks will be found useful and helpful in the conduct of anyone's missions that are still working in the community. Uh, I hope that all of you today, if you haven't had a chance to serve, will thoughtfully consider serving. Uh, whether it's one year, five years, ten years, thirty years. So, remarks begin. From the Black Sea and the Eastern Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, wars and counterterrorism operations define this century's threats to U.S. and allied national and economic interests. Russia, Syria, and Iran have consistently targeted unarmed civilians, hospitals, schools, and food supplies. Modern warfare tactics and counterterrorism operations implore us to take a hard look at the laws of modern warfare and the ethical principles that guide the sanctity of fighting just wars. For those of you who are a lot younger than I am, I worry every day that you think this kind of modern warfare is normal, and it's not. It's not okay to target non-combatants. It is not okay to target civilians it, under any circumstances. And I say that after having worked at CIA in the post-9-11 period. And we know that not every operation was targeted. And so I'm the pot calling the kettle black. I realize that. And I hope that you take that as an opportunity to be honest with ourselves too. War is awful. War is dirty and loud and painful, destructive, and at times exceptionally necessary. And so in our programs, whether we're here, whether we're at Georgetown, we do try to help pick at, all the professors do, try to pick at that scab of are we, are we really involved in this in a just war fashion? At least from a Jesuit perspective, we spend a lot of time thinking about just war. And if just war isn't the right overlay for our ethical principles, what, what should it be? Right? We're not stuck in the mud forever. So what could it be in the 21st century? As I look at the vast interconnected region between the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Persian Gulf, the threats and risks to us are unambiguous, and the trends are worsening. I want to start with just a, 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 a lay down of what I consider to be the facts. Challenge me if you want, and I'll begin with Russia. So I want to take a little journey with you to just lay out what has happened since 2008. Not going back to the beginning of time, just 2008. 
In response to NATO's April 2008 announcement that we would welcome Ukraine and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic Euro aspirations for membership in NATO, and agreed that they would eventually become full members of NATO, Russia quickly created a self-serving propaganda campaign that claimed ethnic Russians were being repressed in South Ossetia, Georgia. In August, just a few months later, it illegally invaded South Ossetia, and it continues to occupy it. Letting Russia illegally occupy a neighboring country was a fatal error. Second, facing no credible repercussions for its actions in Georgia, Moscow created an equally indefensible propaganda campaign about allegedly repressed Russian nationals or ethnic Russians in Crimea. And then that extended to eastern Ukraine. It swooped into and illegally annexed Crimea in 2014. Facing no credible repercussions from the West, it waged an unprovoked and unjustified war against eastern Ukraine beginning in 2015. Not arming Ukraine as a swift means to force Russia to lead Crimea and eastern Ukraine in the 2014-2015 timeframe was a second fatal flaw. My third point under Russia is, undeterred by the West's sanctions, protestations, and isolation tactics, Putin crafted what can only be described as a deranged letter to Ukraine. One of my professor colleagues at the NSI calls it the deranged love letter, in which he outlined outrageous Nazi conspiratorial concerns about Ukraine government, argued that there was no such historical place as Ukraine, and that Moscow needed to save and protect the religious home of St. Vlad, the founder of what he claimed to be Russian Orthodoxy. Good students will know that what came first, Ukraine Orthodoxy. Then it migrated north. It did not go the opposite direction. Putin then spent a few months mounting a very visible full-on invasion of Ukraine. In the past 23 months, he has waged war against Ukrainian military targets and untold tens of thousands of civilians, non-combatants of all styles. Galvanizing NATO alliance and sending arms to the mil and military advisors to Kyiv was the right decision. The painfully slow manner in which the arms arrived in Ukraine, however, and with no air power, was our third fatal error. The Ukrainian people will live with the consequences of errors one, two, and three for a very long time. There's no evidence that Russia will withdraw from Georgia and Ukraine. In fact, if I were advising Moldova, Armenia, and Georgia, I would do everything in my power to persuade NATO to allow them to join as soon as possible because Russia has no enthusiasm for taking us on as a NATO alliance. They do, however, have a strong preference for bullying non-NATO members and for threatening to brandish its nuclear weapons. Glenn mentioned nuclear weapons. I spent a long time working on uh, proliferation as well as nuclear weapons programs. They're different. 
Um, in my experience of working closely with PERM-5 members on the world's most serious nuclear weapons matters, to include Russia, I am not persuaded that Putin or his generals will launch nuclear weapons against Ukraine. I simply do not believe Putin or his generals have a death wish. There's a fourth factor under Russia. And this is where things get really complicated and why I like to squeeze Russia, Iran, and Turkey all into one difficult soup. Because that is indeed how the world is playing out. It doesn't just play out with Russia, just Iran, or just Turkey. As ISIS emerged and Bashar al-Assad unleashed chemical weapons on civilian populations in Syria, the U.S. took two actions that emboldened Russia and deeply offended and alienated Turkey. In 2013, the U.S. backed away from enforcing President Obama's red line threat after Bashar kept using barbaric chemical weapons against civilian people. The U.S. opted instead to work with the OPCW to remove Syria's chemical weapons stockpiles. Bashar, with the help of the Russians, secretly withheld some of his chlorine gas and his serum. Bashar resumed using chlorine gas in August of 2014. Other than lodging protests, the U.S. took no credible actions against Syria's CW program until President Trump ordered a tomahawk attack in April of 2017 that destroyed a known facility. Between 2013 and 2017, Russia clearly gained the upper hand in propping up Bashar, frustrating the U.S., frustrating Turkey, and most of Europe. The second action the U.S. took in 2014 was when Washington performed a, high, performed a highly controversial partnership with the Syrian YPG in an effort to fight ISIS. This is a decision that drew immediate objections from Turkey due to the YPG's undisputed associations with PKK. I've worked on the PKK for a very long time. Um, I do believe it is undisputed, the association between the two. Turkey watchers know that no single other issue unifies the Turkish people more than the PKK, a terrorist group that has been on the State Department's FTO list since 1997. Context here is useful. I was an ADDO at the time. I was one of the associate deputy directors of operations at CIA at the time the decision was made to form this alliance. And it was really a challenging um, set of instructions uh, once the White House made up its mind what it was going to do. As the Syrian, the, the context here is as the Syrian civil war entered its second year, which would have been 2012, Russia remained occupiers in Georgia, and Iran became a more forceful presence in Iraq. During that time, too, the Turks asked for uh, Patriot anti-aircraft missile defense systems. Washington said no. I believe this was a grave error. Turkey kept asking for Patriots in response to growing CWUs in 2013 and 2014 and the Russians' annexation of Crimea in 2014. When you live in the neighborhood of Turkey, the Black Sea is to your north, and Crimea is not very far away. 
and Syria is on your doorstep. Feels different than when you're in Washington. Washington did continue to say no. Turkey had made some grievous errors in the early days of ISIS, and they paid a big price by not getting the Patriots and getting kicked out of a few other programs. They enabled recruits to go from Turkey into the Caliphate, and they also allowed um, various tourists who claimed to be interested in the Caliphate from a religious perspective to travel there. These actions undermined NATO and caused great tensions between the United States and Ankara. Really big fights. But by the mid to late 19, 2014 timeframe, the Turks understood their error and were supporting and leading various operations against ISIS. By habit, they were also keeping close tabs on PKK camps and personnel in Syria and Iraq. If you know anything about the history of the PKK, you know that they, they, they left Turkey to train. And uh, Papa Assad, daddy, gave them permission to uh, train in the Syrian-occupied areas of Lebanon. So the Turks have forever, and since the 1980s, been watching very carefully Kurdish movements, Turkish Kurdish movements in Syria, and of course into Iraq. Turkish operations against the PKK in Iraq and Syria sometimes put ordinance in direct or close range of US and YPG forces. In this difficult climate, the U.S. kept declining to sell patriots, and relationships with Ankara continued to get worse. After the failed 2016 coup in Ankara, which Turkey blamed squarely on U.S.-based permanent residents Fethullah Gülen, Turkey gave up on the patriots and went shopping for its air defense needs in China first, and then Russia. Putin took full advantage of all of this chaos. He offered to sell Ankara Russian S-400 anti-aircraft missile systems and made generous energy deals. He doubled down on support to Bashar, and in 2015, he secured permission to establish long-term Russian naval and air bases in Syria. Putin's ambitions in Syria were incredibly meaningful. From the time of Catherine the Great's march to Crimea, which she secured in 1774, Russian and Soviet leaders had sought unfettered access to the Eastern Med. From 1774 to 2015, great power alliances in Europe and NATO had contained the Russian Black Sea fleet to the Black Sea. Given America's vast investments in defense, intelligence, and alliances throughout the 21st century, and the Cold War before then, how did Putin pull this off? Were we really and truly surprised? Those are the questions I began asking myself as I entered the staff at Georgetown. How did this happen? In my dark moments, I wondered, were we complicit in any way in purposefully underestimating Putin thinking that we were going to get a good deal on something else, and he simply got used. I don't like that. I don't like the way that story sounds. But it is possible. 
while Russia and Syria had the right to establish these bilateral defense agreements, Russia's new force posture in the Eastern Med posed immediate and enduring lethal threats to U.S. and coalition forces. Russia quickly used its bases in Syria to violate Turkish airspace and to mount lethal attacks against U.S. and coalition forces. Compounding our challenges in America, Iran also established permanent bases in Syria and began supplying drones for Russia to use against Ukraine. Russia's plans and intentions for this vast region are not complicated. The picture I painted for you is pretty simple. Its actions and intentions are abundantly clear. They are not mired in complexity. U.S. and U.N. sanctions and political isolation tactics have been necessary, but ineffective. In my experience, Russia only responds to power, the threat of power. It will send endless numbers of young men to die in war. It will find ways around sanctions. It will not yield to diplomatic and trade pressures, isolation, and tough financial times. If Russia is not forced to return to its borders, it will not give up seized territories in Georgia or Russia, Georgia or Ukraine. It will not stop targeting U.S. and coalition forces in Syria and Iraq. It will not stop planning to intimidate or invade other countries. And it will not stop flirting with Turkey by offering it impossible air defense systems and the appearance of enduring cheap energy supplies. I do not mean that we must provoke a war with Russia. I do not, I do mean that it is well overdue for NATO to base far more combined combat forces, far more fighter aircraft, far more naval capabilities, and far more language qualified military attaches, political military officers, and intelligence officers to all NATO states that border on Ukraine the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea, and now the Sea of Finland. Thank you, Finland. <laughs> the visible, the Finns fight. Do you know Finns? Yeah, they fight. My grandfather was Swedish. They don't fight. <laughs> he got this little pink cake problem too. The, with love in my heart. The visible projection of hard U.S.-NATO power and credible personal relationships has genuine impact. Washington and Brussels need to fill these gaps and keep sending Ukraine badly needed arms, fighter aircraft, anti-aircraft batteries, and tank busters. That's my views on Russia. I look forward to hearing your questions after I tell you what I think my views are of Iran and Turkey. So let's now turn to Iran. I had the honor and privilege of learning about Iran as an undergrad during the revolution and applying everything I learned during endless meetings with brave and cunning Iranian sources as I worked my way up the chain at CIA to become the Chief of Operations for the Iran Operations Division. We can never undo what President Eisenhower did to instigate the coup that brought Shah Papabi and the Sabak to power. But we can vow to try to make things better now. I love the, Amer the Iranian people, and I hope that one day they will have an opportunity to live, learn, and work with the rich. 
wearing what they wish and enter a far more tolerant regime. That said, here is my rather stark assessment of the Iranian regime, not the people, the regime. First, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the Supreme Leader Khomeini and his proxies killed and injured hundreds of U.S. and coalition diplomats and forces in Lebanon in 1983. I will never get over this. Khamenei followed in those footsteps and perpetrated the attack that killed and injured several hundred U.S. and coalition forces at Polar Towers in Saudi Arabia in 1996. He has sustained lethal operations against the U.S. and coalition forces in Iraq since at least 2005, in Syria since at least 2015, <coughs> and in Yemen since at least 2014. The Supreme Leader and his closest guardians unequivocally hate us, and they want us out of the Middle East. Unequivocally. Second, the regime has expansionist ambitions. After centuries of contracting from the once great Persian Empire, and even the more recent Qajar Empire, Iran now enjoys defensible combat-ready bases in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, and Afghanistan. It does not plan to pack up its troops and proxies and go home. Third, Tehran has funded, trained, equipped, and provided lethal targeting support to the militant wing of Hezbollah since the 1980s and to the Houthis since the 2014 timeframe. These militant groups are no longer terrorist proxies. They're no longer rebels. They are professionalized Iranian-backed armies that do one thing and wage war. They do not nation build, and at least not yet, they do not fight for the purposes of negotiating ceasefire arrangements. Adding to this threat picture, Hamas, as we know, brutally attacked Israel on 7 October, and Israel is taking steps to defend its sovereignty, negotiate the return of international hostages, and destroy Hamas's abilities to mount future terrorist attacks. Its efforts have resulted in untold thousands of non-combatant Palestinian deaths and injuries. Iran has been Hamas's preferred ally most of the time since the early 2000s. Turkey and Qatar entered the Hamas friendship fray in 2009, thus irritating Washington and NATO. From 2015 to today, however, Hamas's principal um, provisioner of arms training and funding have been Iran and Hezbollah. And let me just say, for re-emphasizing again, Iran does not train its proxies to negotiate. It trains and equips them to terrorize and wage war. <coughs> so do not expect Iran to play a productive role in helping Hamas negotiate a ceasefire or the release of hostages. Finally, let us not forget that Iran is inching towards becoming a nuclear weapons power. I know more than the average bear about nuclear weapons programs. Without a doubt, and in large part thanks to Jack Poe's, the, the negotiated joint comprehensive uh, plan of action, 
um, that was signed in 2015. Uh, without a doubt, and in large part thanks to Jack Poe's rather generous terms, Tehran retained access to the material and machines. We can debate those kind of points. When the U.S. pulled out of the agreement in Iran, quickly resumed enriching uranium, they had the means, expertise, and determination to produce nuclear weapons. The Iranians also have the means to mount warheads on delivery systems. Given its record of projecting lethal power outside its borders and its growing alliance with Russia, the thought of an inexperienced nuclear weapons armed Iran is terrifying. On a related note, and just for further context, Washington's approach to Syria, ISIS, and Russia's war against eastern Ukraine in 2015 coincided with those international depot negotiations and contributed to what I call stalemate diplomacy. Diplomatic efforts established awkward rules of engagement that left Iran, Hezbollah, and Russia in the region within very close range of U.S. and coalition forces and the Turkish border. Russia and Iran pretended to mount operations against ISIS, but the unclassified record is quite clear. Most of their operations targeted U.S. and coalition forces. Those attacks did not happen anywhere near ISIS locations. Stalemate diplomacy may have created an atmosphere to complete the Jakpoa agreement, and it may have kept the peace for a wee bit between rival interests in the Syrian Turkish region, but it left Iran with the wherewithal to, re to restart its program very quickly. It left Turkey to protect its border without the benefit of big agent support. And it left U.S. servicemen, servicewomen, contractors, civilians who worked in remote areas in austere parts of northeast Syria and western Iraq in much, harder, in much higher harm's way. Several U.S. personnel were injured or killed. Turkey eventually conducted independent and at times counterproductive cross-border operations. This was a mess. In 2018, the Trump administration pulled out of Jakpoa, and the world watched Iran march real quickly towards enriching uranium at increasing high levels. The world also watched unprecedented Iranian attacks against U.S. personnel in Syria and Iraq. In January 2021, President Trump authorized a retaliatory attack against Iranian base in Iraq, in which former Quds Force Commander Soleimani was killed. Despite the rage in Tehran, Iran-based attacks against U.S. bases in Syria and Western Iraq subsided. We now see evidence of Iranian aggression against U.S. and coalition forces in the news almost every week. Between October and December 2023, U.S. bases, housing facilities, and troops in Iraq and Syria were subjected to over 102 attacks. The U.S. recently did resume retaliatory bombing of Iranian facilities in Iraq and moving targets in Yemen. We do not know yet if U.S. strikes will quell future Iranian attacks. 
in my view, the stationing of about 900 U.S. forces on small bases in northeast Syria and remote areas of Iraq has more than achieved the goal of defeating ISIS and getting it under control. U.S. forces are now sitting ducks in remote, indefensible areas that are well known to Russian and Iranian forces who aim to undermine our mission, our credibility, and our security. We no longer need the fig leaf of stalemate rules of engagements with Russia and Iran. Instead, here's what I think we need to focus on. First, returning Russian troops back inside its borders. Second, containing Iran's expansions, ambitions across the Levant and Afghanistan, and developing arms control agreements. It's too late for counterproliferation to stop. It's not about arms control or the day when it becomes a nuclear arms target. Three, we need to reset our relationship with Turkey so that we can more credibly and more quickly fortify NATO's southeastern flank. And finally, I believe we need to turn the countering ISIS mission over to a competent partner that is motivated and able to keep ISIS under control so that we can move. As we wrap up our examination of Russia and Iran, I would like to add that in my view, it would be most unwise to underestimate the extent to which Moscow, Tehran, and Iran-backed proxies are collecting and coordinating intelligence, sharing targeting information, and supporting each other's lethal operations against U.S. and coalition forces in any location between the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean River, and Gulf in the region. We cannot afford to make mistakes in judgment on the trajectory of their relationship and the impacts on the region. Should we do something more cheerful? Should we talk about Turkey? <laughs> I'm really mad at Lady Dalla. <laughs> Let's not turn to Turkey. Another country I've worked on for many years and for which I have a deep and abiding respect and affection. Let's begin with a little background. I find in a lot of environments that Turkey is not well understood by a lot of people. Russia and Iran, yes, but not so much Turkey. So, a little background. Turkey joined NATO in 1952 because it faced three considerable external threats that were of equal concern to the United States and the rest of NATO. First, Turkey shared a long and hostile border and sea with nuclear-armed USSR. Second, it confronted a pan-Arab movement that was increasingly tilting pro-Soviet in Syria. And third, it faced unstable rival Arab and Kurdish factions that were vying for control over Iraq in ways that impacted Turkey's economic and national security. History also guided Turkey's decisions to join NATO. It had learned throughout the waning years of the Ottoman Empire that without the support of Western allies, it was weak and isolated and unable to successfully confront Imperial Russia. Say nothing post-World War II Soviet Union. It learned also that Ottoman tactics had failed to predict or manage Arab revolts that emerged during World War I, and Ankara remained ill-positioned after World War II to confront pan-Arab nationalist movements on its borders that were part of the checkerboard of pro-Soviet, pro-US, pro-Soviet, pro-US. 
Thirdly, it had learned the hard way that the Ottoman Empire, when it was isolated from the West, repeatedly flirted with Moscow in search of loans, arms, and friendship agreements, only to be grossly disappointed each time. Turkey's situation in 1952 was remarkably similar to today. The US and Ankara have worked hard since 2014 to distance ourselves just when we need each other most. Just as Russia annexed Crimea, invaded Eastern Ukraine, established naval and air bases in Syria, and mounted a full-on invasion of Ukraine. Ankara knows it is isolated today. History reinforces that it needs good strategic friends, not just transactional partners. So if we want Turkey to tip more authoritarian and keep seeking balance between NATO benefits and maybe flirting with China, Russia, and Iran, keep the same policies, but expect the same outcome. If, however, we wish to leverage its geography, 86 million Turks, and its capacity to transport energy from the Middle Corridor and Azerbaijan to Europe, thus further lowering demand for Russian and Iranian oil, we need to be willing to reset our relations with Turkey. It won't be easy. It will mean rethinking which partner is best positioned to keep the lid on ISIS and stabilize the southeastern flank of NATO. Not just along the Turkish border with Syria, but also the southern, eastern, and northern edges of the Black Sea. The only NATO partner that has a contiguous border with ISIS and Iran and that shares a sea with Russia is Turkey. This is not hard, ladies and gentlemen. This is not hard. Given the layers of grievances that have developed and festered between the U.S. and Turkey since 2014, however, we need to be honest with ourselves and with Brussels. We need to work with Ankara to reassess the CT war roles, the CT and war roles Turkey is uniquely positioned to lead and support against threats along its nearest and broad region. Turkey's not going to move. It's not going anywhere. If we agree that ISIS is mostly destroyed, is it time to ask the Peshmerga, Ankara, or another NATO ally to lead CT efforts against ISIS? If so, we need to be willing to give up that relationship with YPG. I know, cut and run, I get it. Had long conversations with General Mattis about this. He has a decided view and I have a different one. We need to tell Ankara that it may resume CT operations against PKK without our interference. There's no way around this issue. We must simply tackle it head on and move forward. That's what it's like to deal with Turkey. Yeah, fess up, you clean yourself off, and you get going. It's actually a very pragmatic relationship. In exchange for breaking relations with YPG, the U.S. should ask Turkey to mothball its S-400 system so that we may restore NATO 
consistent arms sales, including the U.S. Patriots, F-16 Vipers, and the S-85 Hornet. In my view, you're either in or you're out. You're either, it does us no good to be somewhere in, in this terrible in-between space. This does not mean abandoning our pressure on Turkey to restore the independence of its judiciary and releasing political prisoners. We can and must do both. We are the United States. This is what we do. Here's how I think we can tackle our goals with Turkey and the region. We can confront Russia and Iran more successfully by positioning more combined combat forces in Turkey along the shared Black Sea with Russia and along its shared borders with and along Turkey's shared borders with Iran, Iraq, and Syria. We can confront Russia and Iran more successfully by creating sustainable oil markets in Europe and Asia with the help of Turkey's vast pipelines to transport oil coming from the middle corridor of Georgia and Azerbaijan. We can help Turkey modernize and expand the capacity of its defense industries so that we can more successfully burden share the NATO compatible arms requirements for Ukraine's other hotspots. <clears throat> We can and must do better on this vast region. I believe these steps are a good start as long as we get started soon. Given the threats facing NATO's southern flank, southeastern flank, I argue that we need to reset our relationships. And if we don't, we risk losing Turkey just like we lost Iran. And yes, we can lose Turkey. Here are three ways we can lose it. The Turks were far more impacted by the US-led war in Iraq than any other party. They have borne the brunt of destabilized oil markets, refugees, Kurdish quests for autonomy and independence, and the rise of Shia-led governments all along its southern border. Secondly, because Ankara bought Russian S-400 anti-aircraft defense systems and signed lucrative energy deals, the U.S. imposed those sanctions on Turkey. Sanctions are blunt instruments that aim to change, slow, or stop various enemy behaviors. I do not believe they are appropriate tools for use among allies. Arms embargoes are also difficult to manage. Each time the U.S. has imposed arms embargoes against Turkey, it has come back to haunt us because we have needed Turkey's help to confront and or contain Russia, Iran, and terrorism every time we've done it. Every time. Turkey's region is a rough one. Iran and Russia play hardball. Terrorists thrive in chaos. And Kurdish separatists and autonomy seekers in Turkey are growing bolder with each decade. Alliances are hard work. Countries often disagree. That is why we raise skilled diplomats, military attaches. This is why we have special congressional committees and blue ribbon commissions. And it is why we raise really good statecraft practitioners. They are the ones we need to call upon to find solutions to U.S. and broader NATO disagreements with Turkey. 
third thing that can cause things really to us to, to lose Turkey is that beginning in 2009, it sharply pivoted away from Israel towards Hamas and Qatari partners. While the turnabout caused great consternation in Tel Aviv and Washington, we have to remember that Turkey is a Muslim nation and that beneath the shroud of Ataturk's strict secular code were millions of pious Turks. The good news about Turkey is that it recognized Israel in 1949. For most of their history, they have been strong partners. When Glenn and I were hanging out there, there were regular conversations about who the Turks liked more this week, us or Israel. That's how close, <coughs> that's how deep those relationships are, were, and probably are today. This means that with strong efforts by skilled diplomats, military attaches, intelligence officers, and politicians, the U.S. can work to encourage Turkey and Israel to rebuild trust and rebuild their really strong programs. So in conclusion, my view is that discrete bilateral strategies with Russia, Turkey, and Iran that don't talk to each other have failed the U.S. and the region from the Cold War through today. This is a big, interconnected, vast region where Russia, Iran, Turkey, you got to deal with all three of them at the same time, or the wheels fall off the bus on one or, the, or two or all three of them. My bold proposition is that the U.S. must treat the Black Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean regions, as a big socio-economic and political region. What would our policies look like? Russia and Iran have, have expansionist ambitions. If we don't mind that, then keep doing the same thing. If we do mind, whether it is for values or for national interest reasons, we must be willing to confront them. We must be willing to fight to push them back inside their boundaries, either by threat of force or by force. Not just rely upon economic and political isolation and other pressures and tactics. History says it doesn't work. Turkey cannot become their pawn. We need to remain fully and firmly committed to keeping Turkey anchored in NATO so that the alliance can more effectively confront, not just contain, not just isolate Iran and Russia. We have to tackle all three of these at one time and we have to do it all the time. Because not only is that important, but China's watching. So we need to be bold, decisive, and fast. Thank you. Questions, which is the scariest thing for a speaker to do. Usually it's good good timing to just walk right up to the minute and go, oh, suckers. <laughs> but if anyone has questions, and by the way, I'm sorry about the pirate patch. I had two eye surgeries last Wednesday, and I would hope that I would have 
inability to present myself to you without looking like a pirate today, but the eye gods said no. So, sorry about the eye. And that means I don't see very well. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, thank you. I'd like to ask about the leadership of the Kurdish Workers' Party, the PKK. You may or may not think that this was true, but years ago I had read that surprisingly the Turks, although holding him in jail, were letting Abdullah Ojalan communicate regularly with his political allies, his lawyers, his family, anybody who wanted. Was that true? Is it true now? And then sort of more generally, how big is the influence of Ojalan within the Kurdish diaspora? So really good question. So you know, um, Apple, as they endearingly refer to him, Abdullah in the, in the Kurdish um, vernacular, the, the, the uncle part of it is Apple. Apple was uh, the founder of the PKK. He um, took the measures to move to Syria with Hafez al-Assad's approval, developed training camps, recruitment mechanisms, and launched untold numbers of attacks, mostly in southeast Turkey, but also in Istanbul, also in some of the cities. Um, it made him a hero of Turkish Kurds, and it made him a villain of Turks, especially of gendarme, police, military uh, families who had been affected by the, the mass terrorist operations. When he was captured in 1999, which was a wonderful caper, don't have time to tell you about it today, but it was a wonderful caper, um, there were a few discussions with the Turks when we knew where, when we knew where he was. The Turks had the death penalty at the time, and they agreed that they would eventually outlaw the death penalty. And I thought that was really charming. I came, I, I came to Washington from Texas, one of the great death penalty states. Yeah. So, you know, the pot calling the kettle black, nothing like Americans who have the death penalty yeah, demanding that Turkey disband their death penalty, but they, they did. Um, the Turks spent a long time with Apo. Um, they, they tried him and they did all that, but they also spent a long time with him talking to him. He had a lot of influence. The Turks wanted him to go on the radio and, and they, he wanted him to, they gave him flip phones to call his people and basically back down your dogs. Um, on the plane ride from Nairobi to Ankara, there were certain agreements made that he would make certain statements before he had to go. And the statements were back off your ducks. Becoming peace loving people. I love Turkey. If you listen to the, uh, the newsreels of the day he gets off the plane, he loves Turkey. While he's on the plane, I have always loved Turkey. I have always wanted a peaceful resolution. Um, no, he hasn't. He's a big fellow. They used him for propaganda reasons. They used him to quell the disturbances. And the Turks are not stupid. They also used him to figure out whose names they didn't know. You know, you don't always know the whole network, right? There's always something you don't know about. 
And one of the ways you can in, you can find out more about a network is to let the leader just chat away. So he did chat away. He's on a, an isolated prison like Alcatraz in the middle of the Bosporus. Um, he, um, I don't know the extent to which he continues to have a lot of sway. He's been in jail since 1999. He is still considered the father of the PKK. Um, if the Turks didn't like what he had to say, he wouldn't be saying anything. Those are helpful. Yes, sir. All right. If uh, Erdogan should shuffle off this mortal coil tomorrow, does he have a succession plan? Part one. Part two, if not, what do you think the next transition might be? Or three, who do we want mm. the next president to be? So succession planning in Turkey is complicated because uh, Erdogan's party has been ruling in a coalition environment uh, for a long time now. He, he had absolute power about 10 years, and then he had to start kind of hanging around with those MHP guys. And, and you know, Erdogan has survived as a pious party, as a pious man, as a religious Islamic figure, by being more nationalist than Ataturk, which is a pretty interesting combination. He out, he out national um, voiced the MHP, which had nationals in their name. Um, he's had fallings out with the people that brought him to power. Um, it's hard to say which of his current ministers would be able to. One of them would gain the gavel, but would he be able to keep it for very long? I'm not sure. Um, Glenn and I are fond of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, he's probably not a likable guy. Um, it's, it took six opposition parties to come together in what they were trying to call the Grand Coalition to try to beat the AUK party, even after the earthquake last year. And so how do you, how do you how do you win an election after this abysmal performance in the earthquake? So Erdogan lowered the retirement age. He raised the minimum wage. Three bucks. Um, you know, when you hold power, you get to do all kinds of cool things, and then um, there's no way Turks are going to retire at forty six. I used to laugh. I don't need to offend anyone, but we're all Greeks now. Greeks like to retire when they're like 35. And you know, the Turks always prided themselves on when they were in the car. I said, no, you can't. This is this is just phony stuff. But it's enough to get them across the line. Um, the good party, uh, every time there's an election, they spill the leaders because they lose. So um, I have to think about who who would really be able to galvanize a popular majority or coalition environment. Nobody can get six parties to agree on anything, right? You've watched the Germans try to struggle with three. Three's a crowd. Six is impossible. Even the Italians don't try six. 
right? They just keep having elections because you can't you can't do that. Here's what you get, but you can't do that. So um, I I do look for the JHPE to have a comeback with the right leader. It is the natural pendulum swing that you would expect, and the pendulum in Turkey is about to swing. Uh, not because suddenly people are not pious. I really want you to leave this lecture really understanding. Just because Turks didn't express their their faith during the Ataturk period didn't mean they weren't faithful. It did not mean that. And you see that with popularity of the AK Party. If you were too Islamic before the AK Party, you couldn't do a job. You couldn't do a job. You couldn't be in the military. You got chaptered out every August. Couldn't get a loan for certain kinds of things. So the pendulum swung really hard. And now we can hope that the pendulum, when it swings, will swing a little bit more of the center where both the pious and the seculars feel like they have a home. But who's going to do it? I don't know. I always look at the mayor of Istanbul. Whoever the mayor of Istanbul is, that's, that's, it's really hard to win that election. When you win that election, you've got some momentum going going into a national election. But you gotta carry, you gotta carry something besides the coast. And that's where the AK party really has a stronghold. It's kind of like our middle, except they don't have an electoral college. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Is it me? Yes. Yeah. So I, I just want to. I know that you mentioned several times about the president where you're talking about Russia and also you're talking about uh, Turkey as well. Do you think that nowadays our over-reliance upon sanctions as a means of kind of trying to counter-influence bad aggressors from doing items that we don't want them to essentially do? Do you think that we have built an over-reliance upon, uh, upon sanctions and trying to implement sanctions and as you said, even implementing them against allies of ours as well? And but what would you think would be the ways that we could see we could counter that as well to where you try to move away from the idea of sanctions? Because as you said too, it very much kind of slow rolls most of the time. Uh, it slow rolls uh, what the aggressors are trying to do anyway. So this doesn't really, I mean, you've seen it hasn't done anything to Russia to begin with it, with the invasion, invasion of Ukraine, and they've also been able to find other ways around the sanctions anyways, to where it's more of just kind of in many ways, a feel-good moment saying we've implemented these sanctions and we've had all of our allies also implement the same sanctions too. Yeah, I think in the post-9-11 era where we were at war, 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 and everything was a war, and war on drugs, war, and everything became a war, I think it became, that was a pendulum too that swung pretty hard. And I think there was a real desire to look at options short of war uh, that weren't just diplomatic pressures. and the um, name and shame routine, which is also important, but not effective on its own. Sanctions became, I believe, exceptionally overused. Um, I do not believe they have a home with allies. I think, just like big family, I come from a big family, when you got trouble around the kitchen table, you sit around the kitchen table, and sometimes you lock the door, and you don't get supper until you figure it out. You know, when Holbrook brought everyone to Dayton, that's kind of what he did. Who has a negotiation with Wright Patterson University of Dayton, Ohio? Who thought of that? Well, yeah, if you want to isolate people and say sit around the table, 
o'clock or lunch because I'll eat. <laughs> you actually get hungry. And they were enemies. They were bitter enemies. But they were enemies of ours. Um, I believe allies just need to work things out. Enemies, when you know the choke points that can truly strangle an economy, sanctions are awesome. We have strangled certain capabilities in certain countries because there are only certain technologies they wanted and we knew what they were and we watched them like hawks and we did them and we put them through. That was really important for weapons programs. Um, economic sanctions tend to hurt the little guy, not the leader. And I think that's what, you know, more study needs to be done um, to help Treasury figure out what is it exactly that would hurt the leader, not the country. We learned during my career that those sanctions against Iraq did not hurt Saddam, not one bit. He lived high knowledge. The people starved. It was awful. What we did in terms of sanctioning Yugoslavia or Serbia was too broad. And we learned the hard way we have to go more towards targeted sanctions. But I'm not really convinced that even targeted sanctions work when we're working against a Putin who has put resources in lots of different places and you don't know where all those are. So how is that helping our cause? So I, I think we need I think there's a lot of work to do to modernize our sanctions regimes and to kind of rethink, is it really the tool we think it is, short of war? Because maybe you'll figure it out for us. Yes, sir? I know we're past six, sorry. Um, thanks for a terrific talk. Uh, real fast, just curious to know your reaction on, or not your reaction, actually, maybe the Turkish reaction that you, you might expect uh, from today's attacks on the Houthis by the U.S. and U.K.? Um, I didn't hear Turkey's reaction. I would expect Turkey to know well and firmly by now that we are going to protect the Strait of Hormuz. We are going to protect shipping. You know, going all the way back to the beginning of our country, what was the first foreign war we fought? Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast, from the halls of Montezuma to the what? Tripoli. Yes, I believe it was Tripoli. It was about piracy. Our country's national defense is firmly established in counter piracy. And whether you want to call the Houthis rebels, proxies, it's an army. It's an army. And we will we, we ought to just take it out. We ought to take it all out. They're not going to negotiate with us. Right? You guys know that, right? Some people you don't negotiate with. Thank you so much for coming. I hope uh, this has been helpful for your journey. I wish you good luck in whatever your endeavor is. If you're in the process of applying for the intel and, and defense and State Department communities, um, happy to write letters of recommendation. I, love, I do it all the time. I would be honored to help you find your way. Thank you.